Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 19 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 19 An Enemy in the Dark Adam Salton went for a walk before returning to Lesser Hill. He felt that it might be well— not only to steady his nerves, shaken by the horrible scene, but to get his thoughts into some sort of order, so as to be ready to enter on the matter with Sir Nathaniel. He was a little embarrassed as to telling his uncle, for affairs had so vastly progressed beyond his original view that he felt a little doubtful as to what would be the old gentleman's attitude when he should hear of the strange events for the first time. Mr. Sultan would probably not be satisfied at being treated as an outsider with regard to such things, most of which had points of contact with the inmates of his own house. It was with an immense sense of relief that Adam heard that his uncle had telegraphed to the housekeeper that he was detained by business at Walsall, where he would remain for the night, and that he would be back in the morning in time for lunch. When Adam got home after his walk, he found Sir Nathaniel just going to bed. He did not say anything to him then of what had happened, but contented himself with arranging that they would walk together in the early morning, as he had much to say that would require serious attention. Strangely enough, he slept well, and awoke at dawn with his mind clear and his nerves in their usual unshaken condition. The maid brought up with his early morning cup of tea, a note which had been found in the letter-box. It was from Lady Arabella, and was evidently intended to put him on his guard as to what he should say about the previous evening. He read it over carefully several times, before he was satisfied that he had taken in its full import. "'Dear Mr. Salton, I cannot go to bed until I have written to you, so you must forgive me if I disturb you, and at an unseemly time.' Indeed, you must also forgive me, if, in trying to do what is right, I err in saying too much or too little. The fact is that I am quite upset and unnerved by all that has happened in this terrible night. I find it difficult even to write. My hands shake so that they are not under control, 
and I am trembling all over with memory of the horrors we saw enacted before our eyes. I am grieved beyond measure that I should be, however remotely, a cause of this horror coming on you. Forgive me if you can, and do not think too hardly of me. This I ask with confidence, for since we shared together the danger, the very pangs of death, I feel that we should be to one another something more than mere friends, that I may lean on you and trust you, assured that your sympathy and pity are for me. You really must let me thank you for the friendliness, the help, the confidence, the real aid in a time of deadly danger and deadly fear which you showed me. That awful man, I shall see him for ever in my dreams. His black, malignant face will shut out all memory of sunshine and happiness. I shall eternally see his evil eyes as he threw himself into that well-hole in a vain effort to escape from the consequences of his own misdoing. The more I think of it, the more apparent it seems to me that he had premeditated the whole thing, of course except his own horrible death. Perhaps you have noticed a fur collar I occasionally wear. It is one of my most valued treasures, an ermine collar studded with emeralds. I had often seen the nigger's eyes gleam covetously when he looked at it. Unhappily I wore it yesterday. That may have been the cause that lured the poor man to his doom. On the very brink of the abyss he tore the collar from my neck. That was the last I saw of him. When he sank into the hole I was rushing to the iron door, which I pulled behind me. When I heard that soul-sickening yell which marked his disappearance in the chasm, I was more glad than I can say that my eyes were spared the pain and horror which my ears had to endure. When I tore myself out of the negro's grasp, as he sank into the well-hole, I realized what freedom meant. Freedom! Freedom! Not only from that noisome prison-house, which has now such a memory, but from the more noisome embrace of that hideous monster. Whilst I live, I shall always thank you for my freedom. A woman must sometimes express her gratitude, otherwise it becomes too great to bear. I am not a sentimental girl, who merely likes to thank a man. I am a woman who knows all, of bad as well as good, that life can give. I have known what it is to love and to lose, but you must not let me bring any unhappiness into your life. I must live on as I have lived, alone, and, in addition, bear with other woes the memory of this latest insult and horror. In the meantime, I must get away as quickly as possible from Diana's Grove. In the morning I shall go up to town, where I shall remain for a week. I cannot stay longer, as business affairs demand my presence here. I think, however, that a week in the rush of busy London, surrounded with multitudes of commonplace people, will help to soften, I cannot expect total obliteration, the terrible images of the bygone night. When I can sleep easily, which will be, I hope, after a day or two, I shall be fit to return home and take up again the burden which will, I suppose, always be with me. I shall be most happy to see you on my return, or earlier, if my good fortune sends you on any errand, to London. I shall stay at the Mayfair Hotel. In that busy spot we may forget some of the dangers and horrors we have shared together. Adieu and thank you, again and again, for all your kindness and consideration to me. Arabella Marsh
Adam was surprised by this effusive epistle, but he determined to say nothing of it to Sir Nathaniel until he should have thought it well over. When Adam met Sir Nathaniel at breakfast, he was glad that he had taken time to turn things over in his mind. The result had been that not only was he familiar with the facts in all their bearings, but he had already so far differentiated them that he was able to arrange them in his own mind according to their values. Breakfast had been a silent function, so it did not interfere in any way with the process of thought. So soon as the door was closed, Sir Nathaniel began. "'I see, Adam, that something has occurred, and that you have much to tell me.' "'That is so, sir. I suppose I had better begin by telling you all I know, all that has happened since I left you yesterday.' Accordingly, Adam gave him details of all that had happened during the previous evening. He confined himself rigidly to the narration of circumstances, taking care not to color events by any comment of his own, or any opinion of the meaning of things which he did not fully understand. At first Sir Nathaniel seemed disposed to ask questions, but shortly gave this up when he recognized that the narration was concise and self-explanatory. Thenceforth he contented himself with quick looks and glances, easily interpreted, or, by some acquiescent, motions of his hands, when such could be convenient, to emphasize his idea of the correctness of any inference. Until Adam ceased speaking, having evidently come to an end of what he had to say with regard to this section of his story, the elder man made no comment whatever. Even when Adam took from his pocket Lady Arabella's letter, with the manifest intention of reading it, he did not make any comment. Finally, when Adam folded up the letter and put it, in its envelope, back in his pocket, as an intimation that he had now quite finished, the old diplomatist carefully made a few notes in his pocket-book. "'Your narrative, my dear Adam, is altogether admirable. I think I may now take it that we are both well versed in the actual facts.' and that our conference had better take the shape of a mutual exchange of ideas. Let us both ask questions as they may arise, and I do not doubt that we shall arrive at some enlightening conclusions. Will you kindly begin, sir? I do not doubt that, with your longer experience, you will be able to dissipate some of the fog which envelops certain of the things which we have to consider. I hope so, my dear boy. For a beginning, then— let me say that Lady Arabella's letter makes clear some things which she intended, and also some things which she did not intend. But before I begin to draw deductions, let me ask you a few questions. Adam, are you heart-whole, quite heart-whole, in the matter of Lady Arabella? His companion answered at once, each looking the other straight in the eyes, during question and answer. Lady Arabella, sir, is a charming woman— and I should have deemed it a privilege to meet her, to talk to her even, since I am in the confessional, to flirt a little with her. But if you mean to ask if my affections are in any way engaged, I can emphatically answer no, as indeed you will understand when presently I give you the reason. Apart from that, there are the unpleasant details we discussed the other day. Could you, would you mind giving me the reasons now? It will help us to understand what is before us, in the way of difficulty. Certainly, sir, my reason on which I can fully depend is that I love another woman. That clinches it. May I offer my good wishes, and I hope my congratulations? 
"'I am proud of your good wishes, sir, and I thank you for them. "'But it is too soon for congratulations. "'The lady does not even know my hopes yet. "'Indeed, I hardly know them myself as definite till this moment.' "'I take it, then, Adam, that at the right time I may be allowed to know who the lady is.' "'Adam laughed a low, sweet laugh, such as ripples from a happy heart. "'There need not be an hour's, a minute's delay. "'I shall be glad to share my secret with you, sir.' The lady, sir, who I am so happy as to love, and in whom my dreams of lifelong happiness are centered, is Mimi Watford. Then, my dear Adam, I need not wait to offer congratulations. She is indeed a very charming young lady. I do not think I ever saw a girl who has united in such perfection the qualities of strength of character and sweetness of disposition. With all my heart I congratulate you. "'Then I may take it that my question as to your heart-wholeness is answered in the affirmative.' "'Yes, and now, sir, may I ask in turn why the question?' "'Certainly. I ask because it seems to me that we are coming to a point where my questions might be painful to you.' "'It is not merely that I love Mimi, but I have reason to look on Lady Arabella as my enemy,' Adam continued. "'Her enemy?' "'Yes, a rank and unscrupulous enemy who is bent on her destruction.' Sir Nathaniel went to the door, looked outside it, and returned, locking it carefully behind him. End of chapter 19 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter Twenty: Metabolism. Am I looking grave? Asked Sir Nathaniel inconsequently when he re-entered the room. You certainly are, sir. We little thought when we first met that we should be drawn into such a vortex. Already we are mixed up in robbery and probably murder, but a thousand times worse than all the crimes in the calendar, in an affair of ghastly mystery which has no bottom and no end with forces of the most unnerving kind, which had their origin in an age when the world was different from the world which we know. We are going back to the origin of superstition, to an age when dragons tore each other in their slime. We must fear nothing, no conclusion, however improbable, almost impossible it may be. Life and death is hanging on our judgment, not only for ourselves, but for others whom we love. Remember, I count on you as I hope you count on me. I do, with all my confidence. Then, said Sir Nathaniel, let us think justly and boldly, and fear nothing, however terrifying it may seem. I suppose I am to take as exact in every detail your account of all the strange things which happened whilst you were in Diana's Grove. So far as I know, yes. Of course I may be mistaken in recollection of some detail or another, but I am quite certain that in the main what I have said is correct. You feel sure that you saw Lady Arabella seize the negro round the neck and drag him down with her into the hole? Absolutely certain, sir. Otherwise I should have gone to her assistance. We have then an account of what happened from an eye-witness, whom we trust, that is yourself. We have also another account written by Lady Arabella under her own hand. These two accounts do not agree. Therefore we must take it that one of the two is lying. Apparently, sir. And that Lady Arabella is the liar. Apparently, as I am not. 
We must, therefore, try to find a reason for her lying. She has nothing to fear from Ulanga, who is dead. Therefore, the only reason that could actuate her would be to convince someone else that she was blameless. That someone could not be you, for you had the evidence of your own eyes. There was no one else present, therefore it must have been an absent person. That seems beyond dispute, sir. There is only one other person whose good opinion she could wish to keep, Edgar Caswell. He is the only one who fills the bill. Her lies point to other things besides the death of the African. She evidently wanted it to be accepted that his falling into the well was his own act. I cannot suppose that she expected to convince you, the eyewitness, but if she wished later on to spread the story, it was wise of her to try to get your acceptance of it. That is so. Then there were other matters of untruth. That, for instance, of the ermine collar embroidered with emeralds. If an understandable reason be required for this, it would be to draw attention away from the green lights which were seen in the room, and especially in the well-hole. Any unprejudiced person would accept the green lights to be the eyes of a great snake, such as tradition pointed to living in the well-hole. In fine, therefore, Lady Arabella wanted the general belief to be that there was no snake of the kind in Diana's grove. For my own part, I don't believe in a partial liar. This act does not deal in veneer. A liar is a liar right through. Self-interest may prompt falsity of the tongue, but if one prove to be a liar, nothing that he says can ever be believed. This leads us to the conclusion that because she said or inferred that there was no snake, we should take for one and expect to find it, too. Now let me digress. I live and have for many years lived in Derbyshire, a county more celebrated for its caves than any other county in England. I have been through them all, and am familiar with every turn of them, and also with other great caves in Kentucky, in France, in Germany, and a host of other places. In many of these are tremendously deep caves of narrow aperture, which are valued by intrepid explorers, who descend narrow gullets of abysmal depth, and sometimes never return. In many of the caverns in the peak, I am convinced that some of the smaller passages were used in primeval times as the lairs of some of the great serpents of legend and tradition. It may have been that such caverns were formed in the usual geologic way, bubbles or flaws in the earth's crust, which were later used by the monsters of the period of the young world. It may have been, of course, that some of them were worn originally by water, but in time they all found a use when suitable for living monsters. This brings us to another point, more difficult to accept and understand than any other requiring belief in a base not usually accepted, or indeed entered on, whether such abnormal growths could have ever changed in their nature. Some day the study of metabolism may progress so far as to enable us to accept structural changes proceeding from an intellectual or moral base. We may lean towards a belief that great animal strength may be a sound base for changes of all sorts. If this is so, what could be a more fitting subject than primeval monsters whose strength was such as to allow a survival of thousands of years? We do not know yet if brain can increase and develop independently of other parts of the living structure. After all, the medieval belief in the philosopher's stone, which could transmute metals, has its counterpart in the accepted theory of metabolism which changes living tissue. In an age of investigation like our own, 
when we are returning to science as the base of wonders, almost of miracles, we should be slow to refuse to accept facts, however impossible they may seem to be. Let us suppose a monster of the early days of the world, a dragon of the prime, a vast age running into thousands of years, to whom had been conveyed in some way, it matters not, a brain just sufficient for the beginning of growth. Suppose the monster to be of incalculable size, and of a strength quite abnormal, a veritable incarnation of animal strength. Suppose this animal is allowed to remain in one place, thus being removed from accidents of interrupted development. Might not, would not, this creature, in process of time, ages if necessary, have that rudimentary intelligence developed? There is no impossibility in this. It is only the natural process of evolution. In the beginning, the instincts of animals are confined to alimentation, self-protection, and the manipulation of their species. As time goes on, and the needs of life become more complex, power follows need. We have been long accustomed to consider growth as applied almost exclusively to size in its various aspects, but nature, who has no doctrinaire ideas, may equally apply it to concentration. A developing thing may expand in any given way or form. Now it is a scientific law that increase implies gain and loss of various kinds. What a thing gains in one direction, it may lose in another. May it not be that Mother Nature may deliberately encourage, decrease as well as increase? That it may be an axiom that what is gained in concentration is lost in size? Take, for instance, monsters that tradition has accepted and localized, such as the worm of Lambton or that of Spindleston Hay. If such a creature were, by its own process of metabolism, to change much of its bulk for intellectual growth, we should at once arrive at a new class of creature, more dangerous, perhaps, than the world has ever had any experience of, a force which can think, which has no soul and no morals, and therefore no acceptance of responsibility. A snake would be a good illustration of this, for it is cold-blooded, and therefore removed from the temptations which often weaken or restrict warm-blooded creatures. If, for instance, the worm of Lambton, if such ever existed, were guided to its own ends by an organized intelligence capable of expansion, what form of creature could we imagine, which would equal it in potentialities of evil? Why, such a being would devastate a whole country! Now all these things require much thought, and we want to apply the knowledge usefully, and we should therefore be exact. Would it not be well to resume the subject later in the day? I quite agree, sir. I am in a whirl already, and want to attend carefully to what you say, so that I may try to digest it. Both men seemed fresher and better for the easy, and when they met in the afternoon each of them had something to contribute to the general stock of information. Adam, who was by nature of a more militant disposition than his elderly friend, was glad to see that the conference at once assumed a practical trend. Sir Nathaniel recognized this, and like an old diplomatist turned it to present use. "'Tell me now, Adam, what is the outcome, in your mind, of our conversation?' "'That the whole difficulty already assumes practical shape, but with added dangers, that at first I did not imagine.' What is the practical shape, and what are the added dangers? I am not disputing, but only trying to clear my own thoughts by the consideration of yours. So Adam went on. 
In the past, in the early days of the world, there were monsters who were so vast that they could exist for thousands of years. Some of them must have overlapped the Christian era. They may have progressed intellectually in process of time. If they had in any way so progressed, or even got the most rudimentary form of brain, they would be the most dangerous thing that ever were in the world. Tradition says that one of these monsters lived in the marsh of the east, and came up to a cave in Diana's Grove, which was also called the Lair of the White Worm. Such creatures may have grown down as well as up. They may have grown into or something like human beings. Lady Arabella March is of snake nature. She has committed crimes to our knowledge. She retains something of the vast strength of her primal being, can see in the dark, has the eyes of a snake. She used the nigger and then dragged him through the snake's hole down to the swamp. She is intent on evil and hates someone we love. Result? Yes, the result. First, that Mimi Watford should be taken away at once. Then— Yes. The monster must be destroyed. Bravo! That is a true and fearless conclusion. At whatever cost it must be carried out. At once? Soon, at all events. That creature's very existence is a danger. Her presence in this neighborhood makes the danger immediate. As he spoke, Sir Nathaniel's mouth hardened, and his eyebrows came down till they met. There was no doubting his concurrence in the resolution, or his readiness to help in carrying it out. But he was an elderly man, with much experience and knowledge of law and diplomacy. It seemed to him to be a stern duty to prevent anything irrevocable taking place till it had been thought out and all was ready. There were all sorts of legal cruxes to be thought out, not only regarding the taking of life, even of a monstrosity in human form, but also of property. Lady Arabella, be she woman or snake or devil, owned the ground she moved in, according to British law, and the law is jealous and swift to avenge wrongs done within its ken. All such difficulties should be, must be avoided for Mr. Sultan's sake, for Adam's own sake, and most of all for Mimi Watford's sake. Before he spoke again, Sir Nathaniel had made up his mind that he must try to postpone decisive action until the circumstances on which they depended, which, after all, were only problematical, should have been tested satisfactorily one way or another. When he did speak, Adam at first thought that his friend was wavering in his intentions, or funking the responsibility. However, his respect for Sir Nathaniel was so great that he would not act, or even come to a conclusion on a vital point without his sanction. He came close and whispered in his ear, "'We shall prepare our plans to combat and destroy this horrible menace, after we have cleared up some of the more baffling points. Meanwhile, we must wait for the night. I hear my uncle's footsteps echoing down the hall.' Sir Nathaniel nodded his approval. End of chapter 20 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One of the Lair of the White Worm, by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Twenty One: Green Light. When Old Mister Sultan had retired for the night, Adam and Sir Nathaniel returned to the study. Things went with great regularity at Lesser Hill, so they knew that there would be no interruption to their talk. When their cigars were lighted, Sir Nathaniel began. 
I hope, Adam, that you do not think me either slack or changeable of purpose. I mean to go through this business to the bitter end, whatever it may be. Be satisfied that my first care is and shall be the protection of Mimi Watford. To that I am pledged. My dear boy, we who are interested are all in the same danger. That semi-human monster out of the pit hates and means to destroy us all. You and me certainly, and probably your uncle. I wanted especially to talk with you to-night, for I cannot help thinking that the time is fast coming, if it has not come already, when we must take your uncle into our confidence. It was one thing when fancied evils threatened, but now he is probably marked for death, and it is only right that he should know all. I am with you, sir. Things have changed since we agreed to keep him out of the trouble. Now we dare not. Consideration for his feelings might cost his life. It is a duty, and no light or pleasant one, either. I have not a shadow of doubt that he will want to be one with us in this. But remember, we are his guests. His name, his honor, have to be thought of as well as his safety. All shall be as you wish, Adam. And now as to what we are to do. We cannot murder Lady Arabella off-hand. Therefore we shall have to put things in order for the killing, and in such a way that we cannot be taxed with a crime." It seems to me, sir, that we are in an exceedingly tight place. Our first difficulty is to know where to begin. I never thought this fighting an antediluvian monster would be such a complicated job. This one is a woman, with all a woman's wit, combined with the heartlessness of a coquette. She has the strength and impregnability of a diplodocus. We may be sure that in the fight that is before us there will be no semblance of fair play also that our unscrupulous opponent will not betray herself. That is so, but being feminine she will probably overreach herself. Now, Adam, it strikes me that, as we have to protect ourselves and others against feminine nature, our strong game will be to play our masculine against her feminine. Perhaps we had better sleep on it. She is a thing of the night, and the night may give us some ideas. So they both turned in. Adam knocked at Sir Nathaniel's door in the grey of the morning, and on being bidden came into the room. He had several letters in his hand. Sir Nathaniel sat up in bed. "'Well, I should like to read you a few letters, but, of course, I shall not send them unless you approve. In fact,' with a smile and a blush, "'there are several things which I want to do, but I hold my hand my tongue till I have your approval.' "'Go on,' said the other kindly. Tell me all, and count at any rate on my sympathy, and on my approval and help if I can see my way. Accordingly, Adam proceeded. When I told you the conclusions at which I had arrived, I put in the foreground that Mimi Watford should, for the sake of my own safety, be removed, and that the monster which had wrought all the harm should be destroyed. Yes, that is so. To carry this into practice, sir, one preliminary is required— unless harm of another kind is to be faced. Mimi should have some protector whom all the world would recognize. The only form recognized by convention is marriage. Sir Nathaniel smiled in a fatherly way. To marry, a husband is required, and that husband should be you. Yes, yes. And the marriage should be immediate and secret, or at least not spoken of outside ourselves, would the young lady be agreeable to that proceeding? I do not know, sir. Then how are we to proceed? 
I suppose that we, or one of us, must ask her. Is that a sudden idea, Adam, a sudden resolution? A sudden resolution, sir, but not a sudden idea. If she agrees, all is well and good. The sequence is obvious. And it is to be kept a secret amongst ourselves? I want no secret, sir, except for Mimi's good. For myself, I should like to shout it from the housetops. But we must be discreet. Untimely knowledge to our enemy might work incalculable harm. And how would you suggest, Adam, that we could combine the momentous question with secrecy? Adam grew red and moved uneasily. Someone must ask her as soon as possible. And that someone? I thought that you, sir, would be so good. God bless my soul! This is a new kind of duty to take on, at my time of life. Adam, I hope you know that you can count on me to help in any way I can. I have already counted on you, sir, when I ventured to make such a suggestion. I can only ask, he added, that you will be more than ever kind to me, to us, and look on the painful duty as a voluntary act of grace, prompted by kindness and affection. Painful duty! Yes, said Adam boldly, painful to you, though to me it would be all joyful. It is a strange job for an early morning. Well, we all live and learn. I suppose the sooner I go the better. You had better write a line for me to take with me. For you see, this is to be a somewhat unusual transaction, and it may be embarrassing to the lady, even to myself. So we ought to have some sort of warrant, something to show that we have been mindful of her feelings. It will not do to take acquiescence for granted, although we act for her good. Sir Nathaniel, you are a true friend. I am sure that both Mimi and I shall be grateful to you for all our lives, however long that may be. So the two talked it over and agreed as to points to be borne in mind by the ambassador. It was striking ten when Sir Nathaniel left the house, Adam seeing him quietly off. As the young man followed him with wistful eyes, almost jealous of the privilege which his kind deed was about to bring him, he felt that his own heart was in his friend's breast. The memory of that morning was like a dream to all those concerned in it. Sir Nathaniel had a confused recollection of detail and sequence, though the main facts stood out in his memory boldly and clearly. Adam Salton's recollection was of an illimitable weight, filled with anxiety, hope, and chagrin all dominated by a sense of the slow passage of time, and accompanied by vague fears. Mimi could not for a long time think at all, or recollect anything, except that Adam loved her and was saving her from a terrible danger. When she had time to think later on, she wondered when she had any ignorance of the fact that Adam loved her, and that she loved him with all her heart. Everything, every recollection, however small, Every feeling seemed to fit into those elemental facts as though they had all been moulded together. The main and crowning recollection was her saying good-bye to Sir Nathaniel, and entrusting to him loving messages, straight from her heart, to Adam Salton, and of his bearing when, with an impulse which she could not check, she put her lips to his and kissed him. Later, when she was alone and had time to think, it was a passing grief to her that she would have to be silent, for a time, to Lilla on the happy events of that strange mission. She had, of course, agreed to keep all secret until Adam should give her leave to speak. The advice and assistance of Sir Nathaniel was a great help to Adam in carrying out his idea of marrying Mimi Watford, without publicity. He went with him to London, 
and with his influence the young man obtained the license of the Archbishop of Canterbury for a private marriage. Sir Nathaniel then persuaded old Mr. Salton to allow his nephew to spend a few weeks with him at Doom Tower, and it was here that Mimi became Adam's wife. But that was only the first step in their plans. Before going further, however, Adam took his bride off to the Isle of Man. He wished to place a stretch of sea between Mimi and the White Worm, while things matured. On their return, Sir Nathaniel met them and drove them at once to Doom, taking care to avoid any one that he knew on the journey. Sir Nathaniel had taken care to have the doors and windows shut and locked, all but the door used for their entry. The shutters were up and the blinds down. Moreover, heavy curtains were drawn across the windows. When Adam commented on this, Sir Nathaniel said in a whisper, "'Wait till we are alone, and I'll tell you why this is done. In the meantime, not a word or a sign. You will approve when we have had a talk together.' They said no more on the subject till after dinner, when they were ensconced in Sir Nathaniel's study, which was on the top story. Doom Tower was a lofty structure, situated on an eminence high up in the peak. The top commanded a wide prospect, ranging from the hills above the Ribble to the near side of the Brow, which marked the northern bound of ancient Mercia. It was of the early Norman period, less than a century younger than Castra Regis. The windows of the study were barred and locked, and heavy dark curtains closed them in. When this was done, not a gleam of light from the tower could be seen from outside. When they were alone, Sir Nathaniel explained that he had taken his old friend, Mr. Salton, into full confidence, and that in future all would work together. "'It is important for you to be extremely careful. In spite of the fact that our marriage was kept secret, as also your temporary absence, both are known.' "'How? To whom?' "'How, I know not, but I am beginning to have an idea.' "'To her?' asked Adam, in momentary consternation. Sir Nathaniel shivered perceptibly. "'The white worm, yes.' Adam noticed that from now on his friend never spoke of Lady Arabella otherwise, except when he wished to divert the suspicion of others. Sir Nathaniel switched off the electric light, and when the room was pitch dark, he came to Adam, took him by the hand, and led him to a seat set in the southern window. Then he softly drew back a piece of the curtain, and motioned his companion to look out. Adam did so, and immediately shrank back, as though his eyes had opened on pressing danger. His companion set his mind at rest by saying in a low voice, "'It is all right. You may speak, but speak low. There is no danger here, at present.' Adam leaned forward, taking care, however, not to press his face against the glass. What he saw would not, under ordinary circumstances, have caused concern to anybody. With his special knowledge, it was appalling— though the night was now so dark that in reality there was little to be seen. On the western side of the tower stood a grove of old trees, of forest dimensions. They were not grouped closely, but stood a little apart from each other, producing the effect of a row widely planted. Over the tops of them was seen a green light, something like the danger signal at a railway crossing. It seemed at first quite still, but presently, when Adam's eyes became accustomed to it, he could see that it moved as if trembling. This at once recalled to Adam's mind the light quivering above the well-hole in the darkness of that inner room at Diana's Grove. 
Ulanga's awful shriek, and the hideous black face, now grown gray with terror, disappearing into the impenetrable gloom of the mysterious orifice. Instinctively he laid his hand on his revolver, and stood up ready to protect his wife. Then, seeing that nothing happened, and that the light and all outside the tower remained the same, he softly pulled the curtain over the window. Sir Nathaniel switched on the light again, and in its comforting glow they began to talk freely. End of chapter 21 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 22 At Close Quarters she has diabolical cunning said sir nathaniel ever since you left she has ranged along the brow and wherever you were accustomed to frequent i have not heard whence the knowledge of your movements came to her nor have i been able to learn any data whereon to found an opinion she seems to have heard both of your marriage and your absence but i gather by inference that she does not actually know where you and mimi are or of your return so soon as the dusk fails she goes out on her rounds and before dawn covers the whole ground round the brow and away up into the heart of the peak the white worm in her own proper shape certainly has great faculties for the business on which she is now engaged she can look into windows of any ordinary kind happily this house is beyond her reach if she wishes as she manifestly does to remain unrecognized but even at this height it is wise to show no lights lest she might learn something of our presence or absence would it not be well sir if one of us could see this monster in her real shape at close quarters i am willing to run the risk for i take it there would be no slight risk in the doing i don't suppose any one of our time has seen her close and lived to tell the tale sir nathaniel held up an expostulatory hand good god lad what are you suggesting think of your wife and all that is at stake. It is of Mimi that I think, for her sake that I am willing to risk whatever is to be risked. Adam's young bride was proud of her man, but she blanched at the thought of the ghastly white worm. Adam saw this, and at once reassured her. So long as her ladyship does not know whereabout I am, I shall have as much safety as remains to us. Bear in mind, my darling, that we cannot be too careful." Sir Nathaniel realized that Adam was right. The white worm had no supernatural powers, and could not harm them until she discovered their hiding-place. It was agreed, therefore, that the two men should go together. When the two men slipped out by the back door of the house, they walked cautiously along the avenue which trended towards the west. Everything was pitch dark, so dark, that at times they had to feel their way by the palings and tree-trunks. They could still see, seemingly far in front of them and high up, the baleful light which at the height and distance seemed like a faint line. As they were now on the level of the ground, the light seemed infinitely higher than it had from the top of the tower. At the sight Adam's heart fell. The danger of the desperate enterprise which he had undertaken burst upon him, but this feeling was shortly followed by another which resorted him to himself a fierce loathing and a desire to kill, such as he had never experienced before. They went on for some distance on a level road, fairly wide, from which the green light was visible. 
Here Sir Nathaniel spoke softly, placing his lips to Adam's ear for safety. "'We know nothing whatever of this creature's power of hearing or smelling, though I presume that both are of no great strength. As to seeing, we may presume the opposite.' but in any case we must try to keep in the shade behind the tree-trunks. The slightest error would be fatal to us. Adam only nodded, in case there should be any chance of the monster seeing the movement. After a time that seemed interminable, they emerged from the circling wood. It was like coming out into sunlight by comparison with the misty blackness which had been around them. There was light enough to see by, though not sufficient to distinguish things at a distance. Adam's eyes sought the green light in the sky. It was still in about the same place, but its surroundings were more visible. It was now at the summit of what seemed to be a long white pole, near the top of which were two pendant white masses, like rudimentary arms or fins. The green light, strangely enough, did not seem lessened by the surrounding starlight, but had a clearer effect and a deeper green. Whilst they were carefully regarding this, Adam with the aid of an opera-glass, their nostrils were assailed by a horrid stench, something like that which rose from the well-hole in Diana's grove. By degrees, as their eyes got the right focus, they saw an immense towering mass that seemed snowy white. It was tall and thin. The lower part was hidden by the trees which lay between, but they could follow the tall white shaft and the duplicate green lights which topped it. As they looked, there was a movement, the shaft seemed to bend, and the line of green light descended amongst the trees. They could see the green light twinkle as it passed between the obstructing branches. Seeing where the head of the monster was, the two men ventured a little further forward, and saw that the hidden mass at the base of the shaft was composed of vast coils of the great serpent's body, forming a base from which the upright mass rose. As they looked, this lower mass moved, the glistening folds catching the moonlight, and they could see that the monster's progress was along the ground. It was coming towards them at a swift pace, so they turned and ran, taking care to make as little noise as possible, either by their footfalls or by disturbing the undergrowth close to them. They did not stop or pause till they saw before them the high dark tower of doom. End of chapter 22 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Twenty Three in the Enemy's House. Sir Nathaniel was in the library next morning after breakfast when Adam came to him carrying a letter. Her ladyship doesn't lose any time; she has begun work already. Sir Nathaniel, who was writing at a table near the window, looked up. "'What is it?' said he. Adam held out the letter he was carrying. It was in a blazoned envelope. "'Ha!' said Sir Nathaniel. "'From the white worm I expected something of the kind.' "'But,' said Adam, "'how could she have known we were here? She didn't know last night.' "'I don't think we need trouble about that, Adam. There is so much we do not understand. This is only another mystery. Suffice it that she does know—' Perhaps it is all the better and safer for us. "'How is that?' asked Adam, with a puzzled look. "'General process of reasoning, my boy, and the experience of some years in the diplomatic world. This creature is a monster without heart or consideration for anything or any one. 
She is not nearly so dangerous in the open as when she has the dark to protect her. Besides, we know by our own experience of her movements that for some reason she shuns publicity. In spite of her vast bulk and abnormal strength, she is afraid to attack openly. After all, she is only a snake, and with a snake's nature, which is to keep low and squirm and proceed by stealth and cunning, she will never attack when she can run away, although she knows well that running away could probably be fatal to her. What is the letter about? Sir Nathaniel's voice was calm and self-possessed. When he was engaged in any struggle of wits, he was all diplomatist. She asks Mimi and me to tea this afternoon at Diana's Grove, and hopes that you also will favor her. Sir Nathaniel smiled. Please accept Mrs. Sultan to accept for us all. She means some deadly mischief. Surely, surely it would be wiser not. It is an old trick that we learn early in diplomacy, Adam, to fight on ground of your own choice. It is true that she suggested the place on this occasion, but by accepting it we make it ours. Moreover, she will not be able to understand our reason for doing so, and her own bad conscience, if she has any, good or bad, and her own fears and doubts will play our game for us. No, my dear boy, let us accept by all means. Adam said nothing, but silently held out his hand, which his companion shook. No words were necessary. When it was getting near tea-time, Mimi asked Sir Nathaniel how they were going. We must make a point of going in state. We want all possible publicity. Mimi looked at him inquiringly. Certainly, my dear, in the present circumstances, publicity is a part of safety. Do not be surprised if, whilst we are at Diana's Grove, occasional messages come for you, for all or any of us. I see, said Mrs. Sultan, you are taking no chances. None, my dear, all I have learned at foreign courts and amongst civilized and uncivilized people is going to be utilized within the next couple of hours. Sir Nathaniel's voice was full of seriousness, and it brought to Mimi in a convincing way the awful gravity of the occasion. In due course they set out in a carriage drawn by a fine pair of horses, who soon devoured the few miles of their journey. Before they came to the gate, Sir Nathaniel turned to Mimi. I have arranged with Adam certain signals which may be necessary if certain eventualities occur. These need be nothing to do with you directly. But bear in mind that if I ask you or Adam to do anything, do not lose a second in the doing of it. We must try to pass off such moments with an appearance of unconcern. In all probability nothing requiring such care will occur. The white worm will not try force, though she has so much of it to spare. Whatever she may attempt to-day, of harm to any of us, will be in the way of secret plot. Some other time she may try force, but, if I am able to judge such a thing, not to-day. The messengers who may ask for any of us will not be witnesses only. They may help to stave off danger. Seeing query in her face, he went on, Of what kind the danger may be, I know not, and cannot guess. It will doubtless be some ordinary circumstance, but none the less dangerous on that account. Here we are at the gate. Now be careful in all matters, however small. To keep your head is half the battle. There were a number of men in livery in the hall when they arrived. The doors of the drawing-room were thrown open, 
and Lady Arabella came forth and offered them cordial welcome. This having been got over, Lady Arabella led them into another room where tea was served. Adam was acutely watchful and suspicious of everything, and saw on the far side of this room a panelled iron door of the same colour and configuration as the outer door of the room where was the well-hole wherein Ulanga had disappeared. Something in the sight alarmed him, and he quietly stood near the door. He made no movement even of his eyes, but he could see that Sir Nathaniel was watching him intently, and he fancied with approval. They all sat near the table, spread for tea, Adam still near the door. Lady Arabella fanned herself, complaining of heat, and told one of the footmen to throw all the outer doors open. Tea was in progress, when Mimi suddenly started up with a look of fright on her face. At the same moment the men became cognizant of a thick smoke which began to spread through the room, a smoke which made those who experienced it gasp and choke. The footmen began to edge uneasily towards the inner door. Denser and denser grew the smoke, and more acrid its smell. Mimi, towards whom the draught from the open door wafted the smoke, rose up choking and ran to the inner door, which she threw open to its fullest extent, disclosing on the outside a curtain of thin silk fixed to the door-posts. The draught from the open door swayed the thin silk towards her, and in her fright she tore down the curtain which enveloped her from head to foot. Then she ran through the still-open door, heedless of the fact that she could not see where she was going. Adam, followed by Sir Nathaniel, rushed forward and joined her, Adam catching his wife by the arm and holding her tight. It was well that he did so, for just before her lay the black orifice of the well-hole, which, of course, she could not see with a silk curtain round her head. The floor was extremely slippery. Something like thick oil had been spilled where she had to pass, and close to the edge of the hole her feet shot from under her, and she stumbled forward towards the well-hole. When Adam saw Mimi slip, he flung himself backward, still holding her. His weight told, and he dragged her up from the hole, and they fell together on the floor outside the zone of slipperiness. In a moment he raised her up, and together they rushed out through the open door into the sunlight. Sir Nathaniel close behind them. They were all pale except the diplomatist, who looked both calm and cool. It sustained and cheered Adam and his wife to see him thus master of himself. Both managed to follow his example, to the wonderment of the footmen, who saw the three who had just escaped a terrible danger, walking together gaily, as, under the guiding pressure of Sir Nathaniel's hand, they turned to re-enter the house. Lady Arabella, whose face had blanched to a deadly white, now resumed her ministrations at the tea-board as though nothing unusual had happened. The slop-basin was full of half-burned brown paper, over which tea had been poured. Sir Nathaniel had been narrowly observing his hostess, and took the first opportunity afforded him of whispering to Adam, "'The real attack is to come. She is too quiet. When I give my hand to your wife to lead her out, come with us, and caution her to hurry. Don't lose a second, even if you have to make a scene. Hush!' Then they resumed their places close to the table, and the servants, in obedience to Lady Arabella's order, brought in fresh tea. Thence on, that tea-party seemed to Adam, whose faculties were at their utmost intensity, like a terrible dream. As for poor Mimi, she was so overwrought, both with present and future fear, and with horror at the danger she had escaped, that her faculties were numb. However, she was braced up for a trial, 
and she felt assured that whatever might come, she would be able to go through with it. Sir Nathaniel seemed just as usual, suave, dignified, and thoughtful, perfect master of himself. To her husband it was evident that Mimi was ill at ease. The way she kept turning her head to look around her, the quick coming and going of the color of her face, her hurried breathing, alternating with periods of suspicious calm, were evidences of mental perturbation. To her the attitude of Lady Arabella seemed compounded of social sweetness and personal consideration. It would be hard to imagine more thoughtful and tender kindness towards an honored guest. When tea was over and the servants had come to clear away the cups, Lady Arabella, putting her arm around Mimi's waist, strolled with her into an adjoining room, where she collected a number of photographs which were scattered about, and sitting down beside her guest, began to show them to her. While she was doing this, the servants closed all the doors of the suite of rooms, as well as that which opened from the room outside, that of the well-hole, into the avenue. Suddenly, without any seeming cause, the light in the room began to grow dim. Sir Nathaniel, who was sitting close to Mimi, rose to his feet and crying, Quick! caught hold of her hand and began to drag her from the room. Adam caught her other hand, and between them they drew her through the outer door, which the servants were beginning to close. It was difficult at first to find the way, the darkness was so great. But to their relief, when Adam whistled shrilly, the carriage and horses, which had been waiting in the angle of the avenue, dashed up. Her husband and Sir Nathaniel lifted, almost threw Mimi into the carriage. The postillion plied whip and spur, and the vehicle, rocked with its speed, swept through the gate and tore up the road. Behind them was a hubbub, servants rushing about, orders being shouted out, doors shutting, and somewhere, seemingly far back in the house, a strange noise. Every nerve of the horses was strained as they dashed recklessly along the road. The two men held Mimi between them, the arms of both of them round her as though protectingly. As they went there was a sudden rise in the ground, but the horses, breathing heavily, dashed up it at racing speed, not slackening their pace when the hill fell away again, leaving them to hurry along the downgrade. It would be foolish to say that neither Adam nor Mimi had any fear in returning to Doom Tower. Mimi felt it more keenly than her husband, whose nerves were harder, and who was more inured to danger. She still bore up bravely, and as usual the effort was helpful to her. When once she was in the study in the top of the turret, she almost forgot the terrors which lay outside in the dark. She did not attempt to peep out of the window, but Adam did, and saw nothing. The moonlight showed all the surrounding country, but nowhere was to be observed that tremulous line of green light. The peaceful night had a good effect on them all. Danger, being unseen, seemed afar off. At times it was hard to realize that it had ever been. With courage restored, Adam rose early and walked along the brow, seeing no change in the signs of life at Castro Regis. What he did see, to his wonder and concern, on his returning homeward, was Lady Arabella, in her tight-fitting white dress and ermine collar, but without her emeralds. She was emerging from the gate of Diana's Grove and walking towards the castle. Pondering on this, and trying to find some meaning in it, occupied his thoughts till he joined Mimi and Sir Nathaniel at breakfast. They began the meal in silence. What had been had been, and was known to them all. Moreover, it was not a pleasant topic. 
a philip was given to the conversation when adam told of his seeing lady arabella on her way to castra regis they each had something to say of her and of what her wishes or intentions were towards edgar caswell mimi spoke bitterly of her in every aspect she had not forgotten and never would never could the occasion when to harm lilla the woman had consorted even with the nigger as a social matter she was disgusted with her for following up the rich landowner throwing herself at his head so shamelessly was how she expressed it she was interested to know that the great kite still flew over caswell's tower but beyond such matters she did not try to go the only comment she made was a strongly expressed surprise at her ladyship's cheek in ignoring her own criminal acts and her impudence in taking it for granted that others had overlooked them too End of chapter twenty three this recording is in the public domain chapter twenty four of the lair of the white worm by brahm stoker read for librivox dot org by betsy bush chapter twenty four a startling proposition the more mimi thought over the late events the more puzzled she was what did it all mean what could it mean except that there was an error of fact somewhere could it be possible that some of them all of them had been mistaken that there had been no white worm at all on either side of her was a belief impossible of reception not to believe in what seemed apparent was to destroy the very foundations of belief yet in old days there had been monsters on the earth and certainly some people had believed in just such mysterious changes of identity it was all very strange just fancy how any stranger say a doctor would regard her if she were to tell him that she had been to a tea-party with an antediluvian monster and that they had been waited on by up-to-date men-servants adam had returned exhilarated by his walk and more settled in his mind than he had been for some time like mimi he had gone through the phase of doubt and inability to believe in the reality of things though it had not affected him to the same extent the idea however that his wife was suffering ill effects from her terrible ordeal braced him up he remained with her for a time then he sought sir nathaniel in order to talk over the matter with him he knew that the calm common sense and self-reliance of the old man as well as his experience would be helpful to them all sir nathaniel had come to the conclusion that for some reason which he did not understand lady arabella had changed her plans and for the present at all events was pacific he was inclined to attribute her changed demeanour to the fact that her influence over edgar caswell was so far increased as to justify a more fixed belief in his submission to her charms as a matter of fact she had seen caswell that morning when she visited castra regis and they had had a long talk together during which the possibility of their union had been discussed caswell without being enthusiastic on the subject had been courteous and attentive as she had walked back to diana's grove she almost congratulated herself on her new settlement in life that the idea was becoming fixed in her mind was shown by a letter which she wrote later in the day to adam salton and sent to him by hand it ran as follows dear mr salton i wonder if you would kindly advise and if possible help me in a matter of business i have been for some time trying to make up my mind to sell diana's grove 
I have put off and put off the doing of it till now. The place is my own property, and no one has to be consulted with regard to what I wish to do about it. It was bought by my late husband, Captain Adolphus Ranger March, who had another residence, the Crest Appleby. He acquired all rights of all kinds, including mining and sporting. When he died, he left his whole property to me. I shall feel leaving this place, which has become endeared to me by many sacred memories and affections, the recollection of many happy days of my young married life, and the more than happy memories of the man I loved, and who loved me so much. I should be willing to sell the place for any fair price, so long, of course, as the purchaser was one I liked, and of whom I approved. May I say that you yourself would be the ideal person, but I dare not hope for so much. It strikes me, however, that among your Australian friends may be someone who wishes to make a settlement in the old country, and would care to fix the spot in one of the most historic regions in England, full of romance and legend, and with a never-ending vista of historical interest." an estate which, though small, is in perfect condition and with illimitable possibilities of development, and many doubtful or unsettled rights, which have existed before the time of the Roman or even Celts, who were the original possessors. In addition, the house has been kept up to the Denier Cree. Immediate possession can be arranged. My lawyers can provide you, or whoever you may suggest, with all business and historical details. A word from you of acceptance or refusal is all that is necessary, and we can leave details to be thrashed out by our agents. Forgive me, won't you, for troubling you in the matter, and believe me, yours very sincerely, Arabella March. Adam read this over several times, and then his mind being made up, he went to Mimi and asked if she had any objection. She answered, after a shudder, that she was in this, as in all things, willing to do whatever he might wish. "'Dearest, I am willing that you should judge what is best for us. Be quite free to act as you see your duty, and as your inclination calls. We are in the hands of God, and He has hitherto guided us, and will do so to His own end.' From his wife's room Adam Salton went straight to the study in the tower, where he knew Sir Nathaniel would be at that hour. The old man was alone, so, when he had entered in obedience to the "'Come in,' which answered his query, he closed the door and sat down beside him. "'Do you think, sir, that it would be well for me to buy Diana's Grove?' "'God bless my soul!' said the old man, startled. "'Why on earth would you want to do that?' "'Well, I have vowed to destroy that white worm, and my being able to do whatever I may choose with the lair would facilitate matters and avoid complications.' Sir Nathaniel hesitated longer than usual before speaking. He was thinking deeply. "'Yes, Adam, there is much common sense in your suggestion, though it startled me at first. I think that, for all reasons, you would do well to buy the property and to have the conveyance settled at once.' If you want more money than is immediately convenient, let me know, so that I may your banker. Thank you, sir, most heartily. But I have more money at immediate call than I shall want. I am glad you approve. The property is historic, and as time goes on it will increase in value. Moreover, I may tell you something, which indeed is only a surmise, but which, if I am right, will add great value to the place. 
Adam listened. "'Has it ever struck you why the old name, the Lair of the White Worm, was given? "'We know that there was a snake which in early days was called a worm, but why white?' "'I really don't know, sir. I never thought of it. I simply took it for granted.' "'So did I, at first, long ago. But later I puzzled my brain for a reason.' And what was the reason, sir? Simply and solely because the worm or snake was white. We are near the county of Stafford, where the great industry of china burning was originated and grew. Stafford owes much of its wealth to the large deposits of the rare china clay found in it from time to time. These deposits become in time pretty well exhausted, but for centuries Stafford adventurers looked for the special clay, as Ohio and Pennsylvania farmers and explorers looked for oil. Anyone owning real estate on which china clay can be discovered strikes a sort of gold mine. Yes, and then— The young man looked puzzled. The original worm, so called, from which the name of the place came, had to find a direct way down to the marshes and the mud-holes, now the clay is easily penetrable, and the original hole probably pierced a bed of china clay. When once the way was made, it would become a sort of highway for the worm. But as much movement as was necessary to ascend such a great height, some of the clay would become attached to its rough skin by attrition. The downway must have been easy work, but the ascent was different, and when the monster came to view in the upper world, it would be fresh from contact with the white clay. Hence the name which has no cryptic significance, but only fact. Now if that surmise be true, and I do not see why not, there must be a deposit of valuable clay, possibly of immense depth. Adam's comment pleased the old gentleman. I have it in my bones, sir, that you have struck, or rather reasoned out a great truth. Sir Nathaniel went on cheerfully. When the world of commerce wakes up to the value of your find, it will be as well that your title to ownership has been perfectly secured. If anyone ever deserved such a gain, it is you. With his friend's aid, Adam secured the property without loss of time. Then he went to his uncle and told him about it. Mr. Sultan was delighted to find his young relative already constructively the owner of so fine an estate, one which gave him an important status in the county. He made many anxious inquiries about Mimi and the doings of the white worm, but Adam reassured him. The next morning, when Adam went to his host in the smoking-room, Sir Nathaniel asked him how he proposed to proceed with regard to keeping his vow. "'It is a difficult matter which you have undertaken. To destroy such a monster is something like one of the labors of Hercules, in that not only its size and weight and power of using them in little-known ways are against you, but the occult side is alone an unsurpassable difficulty. The worm is already master of all the elements except fire, and I do not see how fire can be used for the attack. It has only to sink into the earth in its usual way, and you could not overtake it, if you had the resources of the biggest coal-mine in existence. But I dare say you have mapped out some plan in your mind," he added courteously. "'I have, sir, but of course it may not stand the test of practice. May I know your idea? Well, sir, this was my argument. At the time of the Chartist trouble, an idea spread amongst financial circles that an attack was going to be made on the Bank of England. Accordingly, the directors of that institution consulted many persons who were supposed to know what steps should be taken, 
and it was finally decided that the best protection against fire, which is what was feared, was not water but sand. To carry the scheme into practice, great store of fine sea-sand, the kind that blows about and is used to fill hourglasses, was provided throughout the building, especially to the points liable to attack, from which it could be brought into use. I propose to provide at Diana's Grove, as soon as it comes into my possession, an enormous amount of such sand, and shall take an early occasion of pouring it into the well-hole, which it will in time choke. Thus Lady Arabella, in her guise of the white worm, will find herself cut off from her refuge. The hole is a narrow one, and is some hundreds of feet deep. The weight of the sand this can contain would not in itself be sufficient to obstruct, but the friction of such a body working up against it would be tremendous. One moment. What use would the sand be for destruction? None directly, but it would hold the struggling body in place till the rest of my scheme came into practice. And what is the rest? As the sand is being poured into the well-hole, quantities of dynamite can also be thrown in. Good. But how would the dynamite explode, for, of course, that is what you intend? Would not some sort of wire or fuse be required for each parcel of dynamite? Adam smiled. Not in these days, sir. That was proved in New York. A thousand pounds of dynamite in sealed canisters was placed about some workings. At the last a charge of gunpowder was fired, and the concussion exploded the dynamite. It was most successful. Those who were non-experts in high explosives expected that every pane of glass in New York would be shattered, but in reality the explosives did no harm outside the area intended. Although sixteen acres of rock had been mined and only the supporting walls and pillars had been left intact, the whole of the rocks were shattered. Sir Nathaniel nodded approval. That seems a good plan, a very excellent one. But if it has to tear down so many feet of precipice, it may wreck the whole neighborhood, and free it forever from a monster," added Adam, as he left the room to find his wife. End of chapter 24 This recording is in the public domain. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.